For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Now, some of you are thinking, uh, Ryan, the whole ambassadors thing is in chapter 5. So why are you, you know, it's embarrassing, but, you know, you're in chapter 6. But, you know, remember that the Bible, when when Paul sat down to write the letter to the the Corinthians, (laughs) to the second Corinthians, (laughs) <laughs> coffee, please, stat. Um, to the Corinthians, he didn't write chapter 1, verse 1, right? People don't write letters like that. And he does say at the end of 5, as we'll see this morning, that they should be ambassadors. But chapter 6 is really a description of what an ambassador should be, what it looks like, what are the credentials, and what is the job of an ambassador. So, To get into our passage, we kind of look back and we say, okay, what was Paul talking about in chapter 5? And we were looking at the last half of chapter 5 last week, verses 12 through 19. And Paul was talking about motives for ministry. Why should ministry is just the word it means to serve God, right? Acts of service. And what is our motivation? What is it that God says should move us to want to be used by him? And we came up with these three things. The first one we spent a lot of time on because it's so misunderstood, which he says, you know, fearing the Lord, which just means agreeing with God about what matters, having respect and understanding about God's perspective on the world that he has created, and agreeing with him and his word. That is something that motivates us to serve. And then the biggest motivator we talked about was the love of God. That just as we, not our love for God, but his love for us, when you experience that, when you come to understand what he did for us on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, how he moves towards us and initiates and forgives and loves and encourages and how he is good and how he is just and how he is merciful, that you become inspired like Jesus talking to the, woman, and the uh, woman at the well in John 4, he said, your cup will run over. That, you know, if you receive my love, that it will create a living spring within you that will overflow and you will never thirst again. And the love of God will fill your heart so full that it begins to overflow into the lives of other people. And that's this picture of when you experience God's love, it moves you to love others because you're inspired. And then we ended last week in chapter 5 talking about another motive, another reason to serve others in God's name is because God has asked us to. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't threaten us if we're not willing to. We have the option of not serving. But he asks us. He's God. And he wants us to be his ambassadors. Our passage there was 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, where he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That call of God to be his representatives to the creation that doesn't know him. That's how he ends chapter 5. And so we go right into chapter 6, and what we see is Paul pleading to his audience to do this. 
to let God use them in the lives of others. And that's an exciting prospect, that you could impact somebody else and God could work through you to change someone else's eternity, to fulfill their life with purpose and love and meaning and to help them have context and understanding for the suffering that they're experiencing. That's an exciting prospect. And so what Paul is so good at is as he gives these sort of commands, he always gives reasons for why. And he also gives how, right? He tells us what to do, why we should do it, and how we should do it. And so that's what he really gets into here at the beginning of 6. Why should we be ambassadors? And then three different aspects where he talks about how we can be ambassadors. So we'll start with the first question. Why be an ambassador? The very next verse, 2 Cor 6, 1-2, through 2, he says, And working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, that's a verse that you probably read before, and you probably remembered it because it's kind of shocking and scary and maybe a little bit weird. The grace of God, that's the free gift of forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're told that while God has done that, he has died in Jesus. He died and took the punishment for the sins of all people. That God doesn't force us into reconciliation with him. We can refuse to receive the gift. That's a matter of choice. Because God wants relationships. He doesn't want slaves. And so when we receive Christ, we are forgiven for all past, present, and future sins. We're reconciled with God. We're adopted as children. We're given the power of his spirit. So how can you receive the grace of God in vain. And it helps to look at the Greek here a little bit. This was originally written in Koine Greek, and that word uh, vain is kenos, which literally translated means empty or without content. What he's saying is, is when you receive this great gift of God's love, don't let it have any impact. Don't let it have no impact on the way that you treat other people. Let it impact you. Let yourself, let your life, let what you do be impacted by this incredible thing that God has done for you. But let's think about this for a minute because what does he say? He says, I urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, which means clearly you can receive the grace of God in vain meaning that you can receive God's gift of forgiveness and love and not let it have any impact in your life, meaning you can be forgiven and not do anything with it, which is part of the unconditional aspect of the greatness of who God is. So he doesn't say, if you receive the grace of God in vain, he will take his grace away. No, we've studied through 2 Corinthians. We know that The gift and the call of God are irrevocable, that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge. And so it's not that fear-threat motive that moves us to love. It's the unconditional love. But don't. Don't receive God and experience his love and then refuse to let him work through you. That's what he's saying. And he goes on to explain more of the why. He says in verse 2, for 
God says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. He's pointing to the urgency of this mission. God wants to use you as his child to bring his love and his truth into the lives of those who don't know him, and the situation is quite desperate. It's urgent. This needs to happen right now. And you're like, well, I mean, maybe, but it's been thousands of years. It may be thousands more. We don't know how much longer this will go on. What's so urgent? What's urgent is, is we don't live that long. Our opportunity, if we're lucky, is 70, 80 years, which in the face of eternity, if we are born and then live on into eternity future, we'll look back from now, you know, 10 million years from now, and look at the 70, 80 years we had, and it will be the blink of an eye. It'll be such a short period of time. And the people who are lost, the people who don't know God, are here for a short time. And the people in your life who don't know God, you never know if they will have another day. There is no guarantee. There is no promise. So it is always, now is the time, the urgency of the moment. It is too important to risk letting this go undone and procrastinating it for another time. And God has always worked this way. God has always enjoyed and desired to work through people to reach other people. Going all the way back, you might notice in your text the font change here. He's quoting the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting Isaiah. And, and what we could take away from this is, is this idea of being ambassadors for God is not a New Testament uh, creation, a novelty created later, but it was always a part of, the God, of God's plan. In Isaiah 49.6, God says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. The Gentiles, if you're not privy to that kind of terminology. It's just everybody who's not Jewish. He's talking in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, the people, the descendants of Abraham, the chosen people of God. Chosen for what? What does it mean to be a chosen person? Chosen to be his representative, to bring his truth and his light and his love into the ends of the earth. God is a relational being there's lots of ways that he could communicate who he is to his creation, but one of the primary ways he loves to work is through his relationships with others, to inspire us, to love us, to give us the truth, and to send us out as his representatives. So when it comes to why be an ambassador, it's because our time to reach others is short. The situation is urgent. There are people who are squandering their lives, living for the wrong things, who are going to sleep at night with a hole in the middle of their gut, asking the question, why am I here and do I even matter? And God's answer to that question is so glorious. But they don't know. They don't know. 
that God offers this free gift of salvation to everyone. And there are many in our culture who have not heard. Think about for a moment how many people in your life that you see on a weekly basis, whether it be at the grocery store, in your neighborhood, in your schools, where you work, you come in contact probably every day, hopefully every day, with people who do not know and have not heard about the love of God. They may think they know. They've heard of Jesus Christ and they have an opinion about Christians. But they're deceived. They're deceived into thinking that the Bible teaches that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. One of the greatest lies ever told. You don't have to read your Bible very long to understand that the Bible is actually arguing exactly against that. It's saying the problem with that is there are no good people. There is only a good God who's a loving God and a merciful God who's calling out to us as a loving Father, offering us forgiveness. But it's something that we could never earn. It has to be received. We live in a time where people think God is dead or he's evil or he just doesn't care. He's indifferent to our suffering. Or maybe God is so, in their minds, open and just free-flowing that he accepts whatever it is and that there is no justice, there is no right or wrong. And the Bible paints this picture and says those, those things are not true. God does have a standard for right and wrong. He will destroy evil, but he desperately loves us. And wants all of us to come to a knowledge of him. And God has chosen those who have received him to become his representatives to make a difference in the lives of those who don't know him. What a chance. What an amazing opportunity. I mean, if you think about it, if we're honest with yourself, right? As I think about this, I think about all the selfish, dark, perverted screwed up, selfish things that are in my heart, and I am like, God, how could you ever want me to represent you? There have got to be better choices than this. And his answer is, it's not about how good you are. It's about your willingness to say yes to me. That's it. When I call, will you answer? When I ask you to go and ask you to speak, will you speak my truth and the power of my spirit or not? That's the why. But how? How can God take broken people like you and I and use us effectively as representatives for his greatness? Paul says in verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. That's an important aspect of being any kind of ambassador, isn't it? Not to be unnecessarily offensive. And that's an important qualification here because he's not saying don't be offensive ever in any way, shape, or form. Jesus certainly had his times where he offended people. 
And that's because the message itself, the message of God's love and forgiveness for us, carries with it some built-in offense that we dare not take away. Because we have to understand the offense of the message if we're going to understand the glory of the message. And so ambassadors should not be unnecessarily offensive. The idea that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God should offend you, right? I remember as a non-Christian hearing that, and it wasn't that I thought I was perfect. I mean, I knew I wasn't perfect. But the problem is, is you're telling me I'm not good enough? That I'm not acceptable the way that I am? I was quite offended by that. I was quick to, you know, when Christians would come and say, you know, well, you need God's grace and forgiveness, I'd be like, well, you're saying God made me, right? And they would be like, yeah, God made you. And that God has a problem with me. Well, yeah, he has a problem with your evil. So God doesn't like what God made. Is that what you're saying? And they would be like, oh, I don't like where you're going with this. Okay. <laughs> and I would say, it sounds like God's problem, not mine. You know, if I make something I don't like, I blame myself. I don't blame the thing. I was a jerk. <laughs> that, but that was me responding to the offense of that message, right? Not only am I not good enough, but I can never earn, I can never make myself good enough because I'm a created thing. I'm created for a relationship with God for that purpose, which means I am created with a need for him. He has to come into my life and open me up and work through me, I need his forgiveness for me. And that's the offense, and we can't take that away. You know, sometimes Christians are are thinking, you know, well, we just need to get away from the whole thing that God judges evil, right? And just focus on the love and the forgiveness part. But what are you forgiving? What are you forgiving for? And if you take away the judgment of God, you also take away the love of God, because if God doesn't judge evil, then God's not good. God's looking at the rape and the murder and the genocide and the horrible things that we perpetrate on one another and saying, "Eh, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And he's not good. So the message has offense. And our goal is not to never offend anyone. Just like an ambassador who was sent to a foreign nation, right? The policies of the nation he represents may be offensive. And so he has to be faithful to what he represents. But at the same time, he needs to be savvy and shrewd so that he's not unnecessarily offensive. So that he's not blocking the part that's hard for them to hear with the stuff that's unnecessary. An ambassador needs to be a student of the culture in which they serve. That's so critical that we understand our context. Imagine being sent as an ambassador to Syria, right? To a Muslim country. And you don't know anything about the culture. You don't know anything about the sensitivities of, of, of the history that's happened there, of the religion of the people. And you step off the plane wearing your favorite hat, <laughs> eating a pork chop sandwich, and no one will listen to you. You've already immediately broken and disqualified yourself as a representative. 
Nothing you say, no matter how important it is, no matter how good it is, and how beneficial it would be to the people there, they will not hear you because you have broken the trust, their image and understanding of who you are. And you may not even do that intentionally. You just haven't studied the culture that you're in. As Christians, we must study the culture that we're in so that we can be relevant so that we can speak to people in a language that they will hear and we can avoid being unnecessarily offensive. This is part of why so many Christians are offensive because they remove themselves from culture. We create Christian ghettos where we wall up our churches and we keep our children away from you know, the heathens that are outside the walls of the church and the community. And we have our own music and our own literature and our own television stations and all of these things. And we never get outside of the culture of ourselves and we become very weird. People outside of that culture look in and they just look at you like, why do you dress that way? Why, why when you're upset, do you say, oh, my land? You know? <laughs> now, a lot of this is honestly earned because we want to honor God with our behavior. But we also are called by God to be ambassadors, which means studying the culture. Gandhi supposedly said on Christians, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's an outsider observing something within Christian culture that is hard to hear, but it's true. We are not here to represent ourselves and to bring our preferences. We're not here to sway people on things that don't matter in eternity. We're here to represent who God is and we may do that imperfectly. We will do that imperfectly. But we need to pray about and be conscientious about how to approach sensitive topics in our culture with love. We dare not change the truth. We do not contradict the Word of God. And we do not withhold the Word of God. We talk about the tough things, but we do so as carefully and as diplomatically and in the context of a loving relationship wherever possible because we want to be good ambassadors. So we have to keep up with news and music and film and art. We have to be students of our culture. And you say, well, you know, Ryan, I, I, I was born here. I understand the culture. It's gross. You know? And that might be true, but are, have you become so cloistered in your Christian community that as the culture has changed, you haven't been aware of it and you don't know how. And yes, you know, there's, you know, our culture is really into pornography, so it's my Christian duty to study pornography, right? No. We can't cross the line. But where the line is is often drawn far too short. You know, a lot of Christians draw the line, not at things that God says that we shouldn't do, but things that lead to things that God says we shouldn't do, you know? They say, I would never go to a bar or, 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 or drink a sip of alcohol. But where is, that, where is that stated in Scripture? 
says, don't be drunk. But Jesus was often at the parties, the first century version of bars, where people were getting hammered. Wild parties. He was accused of being a drunkard. Yet, he was not a sinner. He was able to move into the culture. His argument that it was so beautiful is, you know, I'm a doctor and I came to heal the sick. How can a doctor be a doctor if he never sees sick people? He also said, as I was called into the world, I call you. That our mission is the continuation of his mission. So we cannot cut ourselves off from culture because of fear. We need to bring the culture of the kingdom of God into the dark places. He goes on in verses 4 through 5 and says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. What he's saying here is, what does it mean to commend yourself? It's like that we have credentials, right? An ambassador needs credentials. They need to demonstrate some kind of proof that they were actually sent by who they claim they were sent. There needs to be an authenticity to who they are. An ambassador is a countercultural representative. They are not there. They are there to be a student of the culture they're in, but they're there to represent the culture that they're a part of. So a good ambassador knows how to study the culture they're in without changing the culture or controverting the culture that they represent. And part of how you do that as a follower of God is by proving to people that you're willing to suffer for what it is that you believe and what it is that you represent. That's the second how, is enduring hardship. We live in a very cynical culture where people are told, whether it's through religion or advertising or relationships or wherever else, they're sold a bill of goods every day. There are so many false promises we're exposed to all the time. Buy these shoes and they'll make you faster. Eat this food and it'll make you skinnier. Buy this car and the, and the, the opposite sex will find you more attractive. Believe this and you'll become rich. We're told those things all the time from birth. We have entire organizations dedicated to lying to us and making us promises that they can't possibly fulfill. And so we become hard of hearing and we become skeptical of everything. And what people are looking for is something real. And what's the best way to judge whether somebody really believes what they claim? Are they willing to suffer for it? Are they willing to stick to the truth even when it doesn't bring them comfort? That is a key part in establishing your credentials. Are you really willing to suffer for what you believe? And that happens. There's opportunities for that every day. You know, you live in tension as a believer in Jesus Christ. You have people in your life that you know that God is calling you to be a representative to. And you know, and you know well, this person is really surly. They really don't 
like to talk about this kind of stuff, if I initiate a conversation with them, it may offend them. And it's true, that may happen. But what also happens is, is when you approach people in, the, in love with truth, they're confronted with, they realize you're doing something, you're taking a risk here. And you're risking rejection, you're risking judgment, you're risking being cataloged as a Jesus freak, as, you know, one of these self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites. And they see that you're willing to take that risk, even if they disagree with you, they will respect the fact that you are willing to be labeled as such because of the truth that you believe in. I think Pope Francis is kind of an interesting example on this. You know, I, I have my problems with the Catholic Church and, and, and generally uh, with popes especially. Um, but one thing that he has done that really impressed me was he refused to, mo- to move into the papal residence. It was too fancy and it was too removed from people. And so he decided to stay within Vatican City and a cardinal, which is a lower ranking guy, I'm sure it's still very nice, right? <laughs> But what he said was, he's the first pope in in memory who said, you know, I want to be around people, and I don't need something that ornate. And with all the cynicism I have about the Catholic Church, I'll tell you, uh, I was like, wow, this guy is different. He's willing to act and to demonstrate something that he says that he believes. And I'm deeply impressed by that. Even if I don't agree with him on a lot of things, I'm impressed with his conviction, in the same way that the people in your life will be impressed with your willingness to suffer when you live out the truth. Even the people who hate what you believe will respect your authenticity as an ambassador. And it's so important that we have that because we have a culture that has been ground down to the nub in terms of the, the view that they have of the Bible, the view that they have of God, and the view that they have of us as believers in God, there have been so many bad ambassadors and so many wrongs that have been so publicly plastered all over the media that we must demonstrate our credentials, our authenticity, by being willing to suffer for what we believe. Take the risk in talking to people about Jesus But do it in love and do it with the long view in mind and do it prayerfully, connected with him. Be careful about complaining about ministry, quote, unquote, burdens. You know, sometimes I see that where people are like, oh, I got to teach home church again this week, you know. Oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And you're like, you get to share the word of God with 30, 40 people in one place, and maybe someone will come to Christ. And that's such a hardship. You know, sometimes we complain, and it's human nature to complain, but we should be very careful about what we complain about because it it sets a picture, it sets a tone for what it is and the value of what we're doing. We're making it sound like, you know, Christian leadership is this great burden and serving others and being used by God in the lives of other people is this incredibly difficult, painful, unworthwhile thing that we do. How are we as ambassadors when we do that? What are we representing? 
take time to assess how your life reflects what you say you believe, right? We're all going to fall short here. That's why Jesus died on the cross and we're forgiven. So don't take time to beat yourself over the head. Take time to assess, does my life represent the values of Jesus Christ in areas like materialism, like community, like your love for others? Am I consistent? Or at least am I striving to live consistently with what God's values are? Or am I muddling the waters and losing my ability to be an ambassador because of my life choices? He goes on in 6-7 through seven and says, Impurity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love and the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And so he starts talking about how to represent God and he starts talking about character. He starts talking about the way we live our lives. And of course, our third and final how is that we have to represent who God is and what the values of God are. An ambassador doesn't represent him or herself. They may make choices against what their personal preferences are in order to be an accurate representation of who they represent. They represent the ideas and the policies of their leader. Our leader is Jesus Christ. And so we need to represent him, and we need to willingly subjugate ourselves hold ourself back so that we can allow more of him in. And the ways that he talks about this, he talks about purity, you know, which is moral integrity. The word that he's using there has a lot to do with sexual integrity. You know, the Bible's got no problem with sex within the context of marriage. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It's not just for procreation. This is, is something given by God that we're supposed to enjoy in the context of a life-committed relationship. But when it comes to pornography, when it comes to uh, adultery, when it comes to premarital sex, we misrepresent who God is, and we live like everyone else. Our, our culture is crazed with sex, and it's miserable. The relationships, the marriages, the things that, that people, the path that people have gone down here has brought them less joy and less meaning and less purpose, and it leaves them even more broken. And we're called to stand out in this way, to have great marriages, to have great sex lives, but to have it God's way. Imagine how you can stand out just by living consistently with some of the principles of God in this area, how different you will be in your speech, in your language, and in your behavior, and in the quality of your marriage. That's how to be an ambassador. An ambassador has to be equipped, has to be knowledgeable on a, on a whole front of issues. We need to be able to interact with people on questions that they have about the Bible. That's why we get into home groups and we study there and we get into classes on Wednesday night and Saturday morning. We get into what we call discipleship relationships where we connect with people who are further down the road and, and they can help us learn and they can answer our questions. Do you have your questions answered? You should, you should know that if you continue to have questions, there are answers. 
Not all the time are they as satisfactory as we would like, but you can go deep into understanding the great questions of life. Why are we here? Why is God the way that he is? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? How do I deal with these things that seem like they're contradictions in the Bible? Be a knowledge seeker. I started out as a complete skeptic. You know, the biggest thing that kept me from becoming a Christian were the Christians I met. And then the second biggest thing was the Bible. And I became a Christian when I I reached a point in my life where I realized I needed forgiveness and I, I saw people who truly demonstrated God's love for me. But I was not about to accept all the teachings of the Bible. I just knew I was a sinner and I needed forgiveness and that could come through Jesus Christ. That's as far as I got. And I was like, the rest of the Bible is garbage. And I had people challenge me and say, well, like what? And I'd be like, all right, you want to fight? I'll fight, right? And I would go and look for all the problems that I could find in the Bible and all the reasons why it shouldn't be trusted. And I found answers. And the more problems I had, the more answers I found. And I went, you know, to college and seminary, fighting and kicking and screaming the entire way to try to figure out how to disprove the Bible. And here I am, Honestly, you know, still looking for a way out. (laughs) I think we should be that way. We should say, if this isn't true, then I want to know it. If this isn't real, then I don't want to organize my entire life according to the principles that are taught here. And so we should look at this, and we should challenge it, and we should learn, and we should understand arguments against. We should seek out. If you can disprove my faith, please come up afterwards because I am wasting my life. And we should all have that attitude as questioners and knowledge seekers. Knowledge not only about the Word of God, but about the culture and philosophy. He says that we have to be patient. That word in Greek is long-suffering meaning that we have to be in it for the long haul. We have to, as ambassadors, you can't be a hothead who's just reacting to every offense, right? You're a diplomat. You're the person that's called into the situation where everything is tense and crazy, and you're able to bring peace and calm and stability into the chaos. That's the role of an ambassador. He says kindness relational warmth, being moving toward people. So often in our culture, you know, we have all these ways of connecting with each other. We have all this technology. We have all these friends on Facebook. But we are very isolated and very alone. And if you move towards someone and are willing to listen and willing to to be compassionate, they will look at you like you are a bottle of water in the middle of the Sahara. Where the hell did you come from? And how do I get what you have? Because everybody's desperate to be known. But not many people are giving. Not many people are initiating love. He says in the word of truth. That's our marching orders. That's our document. The word of God. How can you represent God if you don't know who God is and what God has said and what God wants to do? We don't bring ourselves. You know, you can be so emboldened in your willingness to share when you realize these are not your ideas that you're sharing, right? 
I can get up here and I can say some hard things from time to time because they're not my things. It's not like my opinion. It's what God says. And, you know, if you don't like it, you can take it up with him. Right? He's management. I'm sales. <laughs> right? That can embolden you in, in a lot of ways because, you know, you're not, you're, who you are and your reputation and all these things are not really on the line if you're accurately representing God. You're putting him out there. And yeah, people may attack you as the messenger, but it's not you they're attacking, it's him. And he can handle it. He can. That we do it in the power of God. We've spent weeks talking about how God works through us, and it's him. We don't need to elaborate that much on that, except to remember that we're not, you know, when we look at it and we say, look, I don't have it in me to be an ambassador for God. Good. You don't. God agrees. Don't try in your own strength to be a representative for him. But let him work through you in his power. And he says, I love this, he says, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. You know, it's sort of like, what does that mean? Well, the weapons of righteousness are arguments. The Bible's very clear that we do not wage war as the world wages war. He's not talking about swords and spears. He's talking about ideas and arguments about what is true. And when you have a weapon in the right hand and the left, right, you're like a berserker, right? You have no shield, right? You're on the offensive. You're ready. You're maintaining a state of battle readiness, meaning that you're eager to move forward with the love of God and with the truth of God in the right hand and the left. These things, all these things, this is who God is. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, with weapons of righteousness. That's who God is. That's the God of the Bible. When he lists out those things that we are to be as ambassadors for God, he's listing the fruits of the Spirit of God, the characteristics of God himself. That's what we represent as ambassadors. That's what we should strive to allow God to work through in us, in our relationships with others. Be representatives of him. And when we represent God well, what will the results be? If you represent God perfectly, to the lives of those who don't know you, what will the results be? The answer is mixed. Mixed. Jesus put it the best. He said, I'm God, and look what they did to me. He did it perfectly, and they crucified him. It's a polarizing thing to be an ambassador for God. There will be those who look at you and they say, oh my God, I've been looking for the truth, and I see it in, in the way you live your life. How do I get what you have? And there will be others who say, you disgust me and I hate you. Paul describes it perfectly. But there, we have this polarizing effect. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, by, we, rep, we commend ourselves by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, but as possessing all things. It just depends on your perspective, right? If you're sensitive to spiritual things and you're open to spiritual things, you're that breath of fresh air. 
if you're closed off and angry at God and demanding the right to be your own God, then no matter how well people represent Christ to you, it will be offensive because you're offended by Christ. And we're taking that on when we agree to be ambassadors. We are taking on the fact that we are going to have a polarizing impact. It's a paradoxical life that he's describing. We can't serve two masters as ambassadors for God. We are either going to represent the world or we're going to represent God. We're either going to have, you know, if you go out and you're just like everybody else, you'll be well-liked and there will be no tension, but there will be nothing good accomplished by the way you live your life. If you go out as an ambassador for Christ, a culture creator who stands out in love but fights for the souls of your neighbors and your family members, you'll find conflict. The enemies of God will mobilize against you, but you'll also find joy and purpose. We're either regarded as fools living for the wrong things or as loving representatives of something much greater than ourselves. What is an ambassador for God? Someone who knows God who's turned to him in faith, who's a sinner, who's broken, who's lived a a disgusting life, who's who's recognized and come to the end of themselves and said, Jesus, I need you and your death on the cross to apply to me. I need your forgiveness. At that point, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we become ambassadors at that moment. We become representatives of God And if we get committed to representing the truth of God, we become better ambassadors. We have a greater impact. We take risks and scary steps to step out in faith because we know the urgency of the mission. We always bring love, always speaking the truth in love, making sure that people know that we care for them and that we serve them and that we're committed to them. And we have a polarizing effect. We have an impact where people look and experience where it is that they're coming from, and they make their decisions. They're forced because of, what, of the truth that we bring in to pick a side. We take joy in serving others. Even while we suffer because we're serving others, it fills us up with purpose and joy. That's what we have in the first part of Second Course 6. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.